Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is bioethicist and legendary abortion rights activist, Francis Kissling. Francis was here a little over a year ago, shortly after the word got out that the Supreme Court was poised to overturn Roe versus Wade. And it's been almost a year to the day, June 24th, that the court officially released that decision. So I decided to bring Francis back to reflect on what's transpired since then, whether things are better or worse than many people feared, and what the downstream political effects have been. In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground. Francis talks about what kinds of organizational efforts are underway to get women to places where abortion is available. And that means efforts on the parts of medical providers, activists, and even airplane pilots. She explains how American women are actually now traveling to Mexico to get safe and legal abortions, how doctors have become beholden to the lawyers representing their own hospitals, and how the political extremes makes consensus and compromise impossible on this issue. Now, Frances is an amazing person. She is the president of the Center for Health, Ethics, and Social Policy, and she was president of Catholics for Choice from 1982 until 2007. She worked as an abortion provider in New York State in the early 1970s before the passage of Roe, when abortion was only legal in a couple of states. And she talked about that in our last conversation. So if you didn't hear that one, that was the May 8th, 2022 episode. And I strongly suggest you go back and listen to it. Frances just celebrated her 80th birthday. And she stays overtime for paying subscribers here to talk about what it's like to turn 80, how she was once told she would die unless someone donated a kidney to her, and how tons of people offered her their kidneys, and finally, what it's like to grow older without children or a partner. Spoiler, it has its upsides. I could have told you that, but in ways that might actually surprise you, surprise me. I loved that part of the conversation, and I think a lot of people will too. So if you are not yet a paying subscriber, go to megandaum.substack.com and join for just $7 a month. In the meantime, here is the main part of my interview with Francis Kissling. Francis Kissling, welcome back to The Unspeakable. It's great to be with you again. I so much enjoyed our first chat. Yeah, you were here last May, shortly after the Dobbs decision. That's the Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade, of course. Uh, shortly after that was leaked to the press, that decision was officially released by the court on June 24th. At the time that we talked last May, a lot of our conversation had to do with what the actual on-the-ground effects of the decision would be. The abortion landscape is very different today than it was in 1973 when Roe was decided. And you talked about Dobbs as being a major setback, no question, but also as an opportunity for reframing. Your message was that the focus needs to be less on state legislative bodies and more on access, getting women to states where services are available. So a year later... How are you feeling about things? What have you been thinking about since we've last talked? Well, I think that, I mean, first of all, I think that, in fact, uh, the legal activity on abortion has been, at the state level, has resulted in substantial restriction 
And that the, um, I mean, for example, we now, you now have a situation where abortion is essentially totally unavailable in, I'm going, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, and in 17 states. And most of the, and those states are clustered in and around the South. So that if a woman lives in, you know, there are some others that, oh, no, excuse me, it's the opposite. There are only 17 states where abortion is readily available Mm. and is highly protected. So we have seen action against abortion in the majority of states. And there are, you know, swaths of the country, largely predominantly in the South, where there is no place a woman can go for abortion. And so from the perspective of people who are opposed to abortion and whose goal is that it be completely illegal, they have had substantial success, period. And then, I mean, I think we know we have seen how draconian in those states where abortion is is now essentially illegal, how draconian the laws have been. And we begin to see the effect that this has on women's lives. I mean, so, of course, we know about the 10-year-old girl who was raped in Ohio and ended up going, and she was three days over the six-week limit, and she ended up going to Indiana, and she did get an abortion. And the state attorney general cracked down on the doctor who is now facing some charges from the local um, OBGYN society. So we know that. Places where the law has changed dramatically against abortion or even moderately against abortion, not moderately, but say the the six-week states, what we have is we have lawyers making medical decisions. So you, a woman goes in to a hospital um, suffering from an ectopic pregnancy. The first thing the doctor does is to call the lawyers wow. and ask the lawyers, can I do this? And the lawyers whose job it is, you know, this is what lawyers are like. Their job is to protect the hospital and not to worry so much about the woman. And so they say, no, you have to wait until, you know, she actually has an infection, is all of those kinds of restrictions, a heart, you can't hear a heartbeat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so women are, women are beginning to see and feel the effects of what illegal abortion really means. When you say they call the lawyer, you're talking about like the lawyers, the in-house counsel of the hospital. Is that what you mean? The lawyers who work for the hospitals are making the medical decisions about whether or not that abortion can be performed. And are doctors banding together to try to fight this? Do you have any sense of like how organized providers are becoming? As a result of this, they're definitely becoming somewhat more activated. And you certainly have the professional associations nationally, for example, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is very active in this. There have been some cases where where doctors have brought suits in the state, you know, when a, when a, a negative law is passed. So you, you have some of that going on. Doctors are are. It is true. It's not. I'm not being um, hyperbolic, but it is true that doctors are afraid. Mm. 
They're genuinely afraid of what can happen to them. And so um, I think there are, you know, there have never been quite enough doctors to meet the need for abortion, particularly later in pregnancy. But, uh, you know, it becomes even less it becomes even less desirable to perform an abortion. And there are now there are now some cases which we, we could see on the one hand as positive, but also negatively affecting women. We have doctors who have moved to another state, mm-hmm. making abortion then less available in the state where, you know, even where it might be able to be performed, less available. They want to go to states that that are more friendly to and where abortion is legal so that they're not living under this this day-to-day threat of what new law can be passed that will influence them. So it's it's at the legal level, you know, it it is almost as one would have expected in that those states that were that are more blue states, more liberal states, abortion, and as I said, there are 17 of them, abortion has remained available. But for the rest of the country, um, abortion is either now essentially illegal or so tightly constricted that it might as well be legal. And of course, this is something I talked about when when we first chatted, which is that we would see a return to pre-row legalization in a small number of states. In that case, it was like six or seven states. And women had to travel. And that was what it was like. And it is becoming the same. You also have a lot of, I think, a, a, you know, a substantial amount of creativity on the part or zealousness on the part of states where abortion is now illegal, where every attempt is made to pass laws, some of which may not end up being approved by the Supreme Court, but restrict certain things. So you can't go out of state to get an abortion. If you go out of state to get an abortion, you could be prosecuted when you come back. Anybody who helps you to get an abortion out of state can be tried. So we now have some cases in Texas where people have come forward and said, these women helped my wife get her abortion and they should now be prosecuted. You have, um, you know, a few states in which um, there's care not to charge the woman who has an abortion that would be seen as illegal with murder, but the doctor can be charged with having committed a homicide. So, you know, there there's much increased pressure on doctors and much more latitude towards not and, and much more um openness to others preventing women from getting abortion. Right. So I want to actually pause there for a second because we do hear that that is going on, or at least people are thinking about this or talking really loudly about this kind of thing. But do we have specific examples of like women crossing state borders to get an abortion and coming back and being like stopped at the state line or something like that? Like, how is this actually playing out? 
I'm going to be honest and say I really don't. I really don't know. Um, I do follow, you know, I do follow the news on this pretty vigorously, and and I think there has been some care on the part of those opposed to abortion to um, not go directly after women, right? Because that's not popular. I mean, it's popular to go after a doctor, right? Nobody loves the doctor. But this uh, scenario where people are ratting each other out, this kind of vigilante thing, like, is that, do we have specific examples of that happening? There's only a few cases where that has happened up to this point. Um, And of course, it would have to be where the law specifically says aiding and abetting a woman in getting an abortion is a crime. And um, I don't know the number of states that have passed that law. It's unlikely that it will be up, you know, like, who knows, but it's unlikely that that law would be, those laws will be upheld in the long run. Yeah. In the short run, um, all of these laws go into effect. Any law attempting to limit abortion goes into effect at the state level. um, And, you know, it has to work its way through the courts. Right, because my impression is that these laws are being passed or these bills are being proposed, et cetera, and it's pretty draconian, it's pretty shocking, and it also just strikes me as like, it's like political theater. People are trying to score points. It's like, these are career moves for people on the far political right. Like, it's a complete. It's just a big waste of time, and it's yet another unfortunate byproduct of this. But I And I sometimes wonder, not that it's something we don't have to worry about or be upset about, but like it comes off as crosses very, like very performative on, on the part of some of these lawmakers. I think that there's some truth to that. Although I think, again, the goal is to scare doctors right. into not performing abortions. I, for the most part, that's the, that's the goal. And doctors get scared. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... We have a lot to lose in terms of uh, continuing to perform abortions, referring women out of state for abortion, all of those kinds of things. I think these laws, which, you know, you can say, well, how many, how many women did this actually happen to? Is it 10 women who, were, who, had, to, who had to wait uh, for an ect- to have their ectopic pregnancy removed? Or is it 100 but again, as, as you say, there is an element of this where the effect is minimal on actual women, but the effect on the availability of abortion is severely curtailed. And what do we know about access? So, you know, we hear a lot about states like Illinois, for example, that it's positioned in such a way it's surrounded by a lot of more conservative states where abortion has been severely restricted. So Illinois has been building, you know, Planned Parenthood, for instance, has been building clinics on on state borders um, in the southern part of the state. Do you know how access has been increased? Like what what's actually taking place? Are clinics like being built as we speak? Yes, clinics are being built, um, uh, and and in some cases, what you have is a provider, Texas providers. Okay, so Texas providers, some of them have moved their clinics to friendlier states. That has happened. 
Um, you also have situations like in New York and I believe also Massachusetts where the governors have stepped in and found a way to allocate state funds to pay for women who come for abortion from other states. So there have been some proactive efforts, you know, at the official level to increase access. Um, and you also have, I mean, for example, um, you know, I do a lot of work in Mexico and we have very concerted efforts by groups there, for example, to provide medication abortion to women outside of Mexico. And also there are women who are going to Mexico to get their abortions. Yeah, that's remarkable, actually. Yes, it really is. It really, it really is. It's a, 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 you know, a total mirror thing going on between Mexico and the United States because the Mexican Supreme Court had a ruling two years ago which said no state in Mexico can criminalize abortion. And so what is going on in Mexico is each of the states is now in the process of removing any criminal penalties, but also deciding how legal abortion will be in that state. How many weeks will there be requirements for reasons, etc.? because each state can do what it wants. And there has been fairly rapid progress. I mean, it's still less than the majority of states, but there has been rapid progress on the legalization of abortion in Mexico at the same time as the exact opposite thing is happening in the United States. Wow. And what kind of limits do there tend to be in Mexico? Like, are there, is there a 15 week cutoff? I mean, how, so how liberal are the laws down there? The general goal in those states where abortion is now legal in Mexico, 12 to 16 weeks is common, but also there are exceptions for things like rape, incest, fetal deformity, the health of the woman, etc., so that there are abortions that are being performed much later in pregnancy. I did a workshop um, in one of the states um, about two months ago, and one of the conversations that the, that the doctors were having was um, the very large number of very young women who were coming for later abortions and how they were handling those cases. You mean how they were handling them medically or? Medically, socially, me medically, legally, medically, socially, et cetera. That I was actually quite impressed with. I mean, the public health system in Mexico is pretty good. And most of these, these young women appear in public hospitals, not in private settings. And the public hospitals um, have you know, I have teams that are working on this to, to A, to find whether, to figure out whether they can perform the abortion uh, under the law and also to provide the kind of social services and um, other um, psychological and meet the psychological needs of, of the women. It's, it, I, was, I was impressed with the sensitivity of the doctors and other medical staff on this question. And of course, Mexico does have a a significant problem with rape and impregnation of young women, young girls. Is that why they've become so much more liberal on this? What is it about the political climate in Mexico that has created this uh, this surprising reversal? I think that I think that that, that there is a um, a very very strong women's movement in Mexico. 
And even though the uh, current AMLO, who is the president of the country, even though he is not favorable to abortion, he's somewhat evangelical in his approach, and uh, but he has... For example, the the public the, the the Secretary of Health and the woman who heads the agency on women, um, they have all been very strong proponents of liberal of the liberal of the process of liberalization. Hmm. And the public is not as opposed as we would think. I mean, you know, we make a lot of assumptions about Catholics, for example. And yet the majority of Mexican Catholics, a slim majority, believe that abortion should be legal. So when women are coming down from the United States to get an abortion in Mexico, where do they tend to be coming from? What are the circumstances that have led them there? Well, I mean, they are led to go there because they can't get an abortion in the state in which they live. Um, Many of them come from the southern part of the United States where where abortion has been heavily restricted, if not illegal, and they they mostly go to private practitioners. And have they been referred there by like their own physicians? Like what would make somebody decide to go to Mexico as opposed to like, you know, Kansas or Illinois? One of the things that happens is, first of all, in Mexico itself, over 50% of abortions are medication abortions. Okay, legal abortions. And you're talking, okay, just, I think everybody knows what this is, but just in case anyone doesn't, we're talking about like the pills that you take. They take pills which bring on, in essence, a miscarriage. Right. And that is, that is widely available in Mexico. So, you know, on the grapevine, women you know, pretty much figure out that they can go over the border. They don't have to go very far into Mexico and they can buy the pills. So like just walk into a pharmacy. They don't need a prescription. Pharmacy and and they, they, they get the pills. There are also a couple of very good women's groups who are providing pills to women in the United States via the mail. You know, get on, you get on the web or you find an advertisement that we do medicine by phone or by internet. Women call Mexico, call these places, and the, those places send them by mail the pills. So there's a knowledge that there are ways to access abortion in Mexico, either by pills by the mail going over the border and going into a pharmacy in Tijuana or wherever, Monterrey, wherever, or actually getting a, a, a surgical abortion. Okay. How many weeks along do you have to be before the pills are not going to be sufficient? Yeah. The general policy or practice is to use the pills till about 10 weeks of pregnancy, okay? But the fact of the matter is that the pills will work up till 20, 24 weeks. Now, and there are countries, for example, in South Africa, abortion by pill is routinely, the numbers are not high, but is routinely used 
into the into the early 20 weeks of pregnancy. Of course, the, the you know the protocol is different in the sense that how much medication you need. It's not you know it's it 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 it's it's a that sounds really scary and terrible. Very difficult procedure. Um, and so we have generally, generally here in the, you know, in the States and, and, um, in Europe, uh, generally they are limited to the first trimester of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think, I, I know when we spoke last time, we talked a lot about how this new, you know, medicalized abortion as opposed to surgical abortion it had changed the picture quite dramatically. The, the coat hanger kind of model was, I, I got the feeling it really wasn't relevant so much because we do have this other option. But I also feel like perhaps people are sort of being a little bit kind of starry-eyed about the medication. I don't really know what the what the right word is. Like I, I think I, I'm guilty of this too, thinking like, oh, well, this has changed so much. It's much easier to get an abortion. It's less of a big deal. All you do is take this medication. But the fact is that I know several women who were given the choice between getting a surgical abortion and taking the medication. And they just said, no, I want this one and done. I, I want to be sure it worked. And I don't care if I have to pay more money and go under anesthesia and all of this, but I don't want to take my chances. Do you think that we um, are too sort of optimistic or, or unrealistic or naive about medicalized abortion? I think that the attitude towards medicalized abortion has changed dramatically from its early introduction. And when was it introduced? Oh, God, it's at least now 20 years that we've had the mesoprostol and mefipristone are to use for this. And in the beginning, I was very interested in this because in the beginning, you know, we talk about the, it was mostly available in Europe or the U.S. Um, and European women overwhelmingly chose medication abortion. Hmm. Overwhelmingly. And American women initially were like, you're the person you know who said, look, I want to go into the clinic. I'll have a surgical abortion, three hours, it'll all be over, and I'll go home and everything will be fine. We, we, we wanted the speed and the reassurance of it's over. Okay. Right. And not having to trust ourselves with it. I think a lot of it was just like, well, what if I, how am I supposed to know that this worked? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that was a predominant the, the predominant cho reason of cho for choosing surgical abortion over medication abortion. I really, I mean, and I think that there were social reasons that women here preferred to go to the doctor and have the procedure and have it over with quickly. Right. And it had to do with the nature of our healthcare system and our labor system. So, for example, a European woman could go have the pill and or or even or even if she chose otherwise to have a surgical abortion, although this was not their dominant choice, this you know they could have they could take time off from work 
if they if they needed you know if they needed three days to recuperate, it was part of the health practice. I mean that 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 the ways in which we deliver health services for women is important. Is is it influences the kind of decision they make? That's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean it. You know it it it's. It, for European women, you know, again, having it over with was fine, um, and they were happy, and they were happy to do it, and they, and they, um, you know, and and there were so many doctors who made it available that it was not, it was not such a big deal as it as it is. But I think that I mean, I and I think that what I see now, okay, is that remember that most a, a large percentage of women who have abortions are young. Okay. It's not the woman, you know, there are women who have three children and who say, I don't want a fourth. There are, you know, all sorts of reasons that women have abortions later in their life. Um, but the, there is a very large percentage of young women who become pregnant and who either are not ready to have children. Um, they may even be married or, or they may be unmarried women, college age women, etc. And their attitude towards medicine is very different than I think those of us who are older. Okay. They, for them, pills are no big deal. Everybody uses the, you know, you can use the, the pill is the easiest thing to do in terms of ending a pregnancy for, for a younger person. Wow. Is it because they're just used to taking medication? Yeah. For lots of things? Yes. And of course, remember, they have no prior experience of illegal abortion. Right. So, you know, they could choose surgical. They could choose, you know, the pill. In some senses, surgical is, in one way, surgical is, you would say, quicker. But you know, after you have a surgical abortion, you still, you, 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 you may want to have a day or two off. I think it's probably easier to keep the pills secret. Right. What do we know though, about things like pills being intercepted in the mail? We have heard stories now about like people being prosecuted for mailing pills. Like why would somebody, is it, is it easier to get the pills mailed from Mexico than say Massachusetts? No, I mean, I think that in that sense, people, I, I don't think the majority of women who, who get pills by mail are getting them from Mexico. I think they're getting them right here in the United States of America. They may, they may, they may be getting that. They may not even be going, you know, they may be getting them not by mail, but by going to a clinic, you know, a, a clinic that provides abortion uh, often provides both medical, surgical abortion and medical abortion. Um, and you get to you choose which one makes more sense for your life and for how how you feel. So no, I don't think I don't you know. So Mexico is is a source, but it is one of many. It is not the primary source of medical abortion for women in the United States. Okay, so since uh, Roe has been overturned, we've seen a lot of states with ballot initiatives to make abortion access available in the state. We've seen you know places like Kansas that mm -hmm. said you know we're just going to make this make 
abortion available here, end of story. Do you see the tide turning in terms of just pop, peep, voters uh, finally saying, okay, you know what, we're going to, we, we don't like this. The fact is the majority of people do want abortion access and we're going to actually take this into our own hands on a state-by-state level. I'm very interested in the change among people who are generally opposed to abortion. You know, I know more people who are opposed to abortion than most people who are pro-choice do, um, for whatever reason. And what I hear over and over again, and what I see in the press is, you know, on the one hand, up to now, we've painted, I've painted a picture of success by those who are opposed to abortion, more success by those who are opposed to abortion in making it illegal than we have had successes in keeping it legal and therefore available. And that is, that, that's true. There's more legal success by the anti-abortionists right now than there are by those of us who are pro-choice. But I'm seeing a very big shift among what I would call moderate pro-lifers about what Roe has wrought. They say to me, and you can read articles about this, this is not what I thought pro-life meant. I did not think pro-life meant that a woman who had an ectopic pregnancy would have difficulty having the embryo removed. I did not think that, you know, she would go to a hospital and the heart, they would have to check for a heartbeat. I did not think that they would be passing laws that made it uh, a criminal offense for a doctor to perform, and that it's illegal, but the penalties are very high. A doctor can lose his license. I didn't think that this, that, that this would become as draconian as it has. They didn't think that, even though they've said that that was going to happen. People were have been screaming about this for years. And in yes. fact, they were very perfectly clear that those things were going to happen. Right. But there is always a difference in what is possible and what is happening. Right. Um, and, um, and in that sense, you know, I mean, people, and also there is a thing where, you know, you say, oh, I, I'm against abortion. I don't think abortion is a good idea. And if you talk to the person, you find out, that they believe in an exception. They call themselves pro-life. They don't think abortion is a good thing, but they think that there are a number of exceptions that are acceptable. Fetal abnormality, the woman's health, rape, um, those things. They never expected abortion. They never expected that abortion would be illegal for everything without exception. And so they themselves find the zealousness of the approach at in some states and by, you know, attorney generals have a lot to say about this. And by attorney generals, they do not find this attractive. They, um, I have had many, I mean, we have, you know, a significant number of pro-life legislators who are happy with a 12-week compromise. Mm-hmm. You hear people talk about 15 weeks, 16 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it is. And those people come from both sides of the aisle. Right. Pro-life 
for the less absolutist person never meant no abortions. It meant that there would be more control and more reasons, maybe reasons would be needed or uh, lower gestation that they bought, they, they bought into the, I mean, I heard Pence last night, you know, describe Roe as, uh, and the democratic position on abortion as abortion on the way to the delivery room. Yeah. You know, well, that was never true. Right. It was, it was just, and, but people believed that. So like when you would look at polls, pro-life, pro-choice viewpoints on abortion, you, you would find towards the more difficult questions, agreement by, by pro-life and pro-choice people. Like, you know, I mean, the majority of Americans do not believe in, think third trimester abortions should be illegal. And they believe in believe that second trimester abortions should be illegal. And on the other hand, you have many pro-life people who believe a first trimester abortion is not a big deal, even though they think they are pro-life. They don't think teenagers should, you know, be stuck continuing a pregnancy. You, you would be surprised. Um, there was a poll that was done by Gallup quite some time ago, I wish they would do it again, in which they asked pro-choice and pro-life people all of these very specific questions about should abortion be legal for this, should abortion be Ill illegal for that. And they found substantial crossover between people who call themselves pro-choice and pro-life towards what we might call a very moderate position. Why is it that you know, on the pro-choice side, obviously the the strategy has been, let's talk about this in terms of abortion on demand, for instance. Let's talk about this in such a way that the public messaging really sounds more extreme than it perhaps needs to be. And then I also want to know, on the other side, on the extreme pro-life side, what these zealots think they're really going to get out of this. So let, let's start with the first one. Like why has, why has the pro-choice side been so, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to use the word strident, but there is a kind of glibness to the messaging. Adamant that Adamant. abortion is a decision to be made by a woman, period. That it is a right and I think, you know, I've, I've said this before, but I think that rights arguments did not particularly help us after a certain point in time. And that, that arguing that, that this is a near absolute, if not absolute right, makes people queasy. And the same thing is true, but makes us, but if you have taken the position a position, and on this goes on both sides. If you have taken a position that the fetus is a person from the moment it is conceived, or that a woman has a right to decide whether or not to have an abortion at any stage in pregnancy, then you are stuck because whenever the hard question, because how can a true person who believes the fetus is a person from the moment of conception admit 
that, well, if you've been raped, it's a different story. If the fetus has a severe abnormality that will compromise its life from the beginning, that's not the same in you know as just deciding you 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 are not ready to bear a child and you you can't give on any of those positions because once you give that position give on the position for example on the on the pro life side that well it's not it's not accurate to say that the fetus is a person from the moment of conception because we we if if i say yes it's okay for rape or you know and of course the response that is given when people say what about rape a true died in the wool pro lifer will say you can't punish the child for the sins of the father yeah this doesn't go any you know the, the average people are not going to going to buy this and the same token when somebody says well if a woman decides at 28 weeks, as opposed to a, say, a 24 week cutoff, that, you know, her relationship changed and now she doesn't want to continue the pregnancy. That's, that, that's her right. It's her right. As long as the fetus is inside her, it is her right to decide whether to have an abortion or not. So both sides have been trapped by ideology. On my side of the, of the aisle, which is the pro choice side, since abortion was legal, these extreme, the extreme end of position was less acceptable. Okay? Because legally, look, you can get an abortion at 12 weeks. You can get an abortion at 16 weeks. You can even get an abortion at 24 weeks. It's legal. Why are you pushing this on? You, you sound extreme. And what, so, but now what has happened is um, not that I don't think the pro-choice side needs to, you know, come to some moderate terms on this, but now that it is illegal, it is it can be illegal. It is the anti-abortionist who looks extreme because mm -hmm. rape—they can't have an abortion when they were raped. This is ridiculous, kind of thing. So, so. When it's legal, the more extreme pro-choice position is criticized. And when it is illegal or unavailable, the more extreme pro-life position becomes more unpopular. Right, and exactly. So, so this is, you could say, if, we, if I was talking pure politics, I would say, well, this draconian law is um, at the at the cultural and the uh, popular level to the advantage of, of those of us who want to see abortion more legal because people are not going to accept this level of restriction. Yeah. So this is like a little pain period that we're in. We're the ones who look extreme now and we look less extreme. You have been the president of Catholics for Choice. Uh, you, I don't know if you're still a practicing Catholic, but that is, that's certainly in your background. I'm imagining that you understand the mindset of extreme pro-life people more than your average <laughs> abortion rights activist. What is in the minds of the pro-life 
let's just call them zealots, like the the people who think that under no circumstances should there be any abortion, uh, you know, at any time. What what are they thinking? Like, how do they see this playing out? Like, what is their rationale? Well, for a person who holds an, uh, I'm going to switch to the term absolute um, as opposed to extreme, but for a person who is absolutist on any issue, okay, and the Catholic position as presented by bishops and popes and ordinary priests is absolutist, you know, the fetus must be valued as a person from the moment of conception, must be valued as if it were a person from the moment of conception. Um, They are right now at the level of, at the activist level, and I would say the Catholic bishops fall in that category, even some evangelicals fall in that category, and some people fall in that category, is they do not see a conflict because the only thing they think about is the fetus. They do not think about the women. And they have, or or what they, you know, here are some of the ways in which this gets framed. It's good for the woman not to have an abortion. That it's now better because women that, you know, there there is such misinformation at all levels uh, around this uh, because women regret having their abortions. So, It's good that if they can't get an abortion, number one. There's also a certain apologia that is happening, which I I find fascinating, which is that the the Catholic bishops and and Catholic pro-lifers, as well as other pro-lifers who who believe that abortion is always immoral and is always an unjustifiable killing of human life, there's now an attempt to talk more about now we have to step up to the plate and help women continue their pregnancies. Right. This is now the defense again by, on the part of the bishops and on the part of others for being absolutist on abortion. We are now going to take care of women who have unwanted pregnancies and who might have an abortion, okay? And, you know, it's a lie. It's really a lie, in a sense, because they will still, these groups and these individuals and in the Catholic Church, they will still vote for a representative who is against all abortions and provides nothing for women with children. Because if you really want to take care of women who might have had an abortion, you know, but would not have an, but are having that abortion because of economic reasons, for example, which is a high percentage of women, You would not vote for any candidate who isn't for all of the things that make life livable for 
children and women. And they won't do that because abortion is still number one on the political plate for those people. And, uh, you know, and that goes for, I mean, there are, there are small groups of feminists who are opposed to abortion, who are also saying that now, that we are going to see that women are cared for. And of course, we have all these pregnancy uh, centers to, for women, which supposedly helps them take care of a child and not have an abortion. This is the crisis pregnancy centers. Whenever it says crisis, that, that's how you know, right? I'm sorry. It's not enough to give somebody a crib and to pay for diapers for the first year of the child's life. Are there like, I mean, they used to call these the Magdalene laundries, right? I don't know where that term came from, but like... Ireland. That's from Ireland? Okay, so like that's when the you know, the girls were sent away to be pregnant. As soon as they were visibly pregnant, they were sent away. and They were sent to, sent to the laundries for many reasons. They were sent to the laundries, first of all, because they were pregnant. But they were also sent because they were bad girls. Their parents, they, they were, you know, they were normal teenagers. You know, they went out. They saw boys. They didn't do what their parents told them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You could go to, you would, it could end up in a Magdalene laundry for many, many reasons in addition to being pregnant. And why was it called laundry? Sorry, I always wondered this. Called the laundry because, because they were laundries. <laughs> you, you went to these, you were taken to this, these centers. And what you did while you were, if you were pregnant or if you had just been a bad girl, some of the girls were sent by, by uh, the courts and some of them were sent by their parents and they were actually physically laundries. And what you did in that laundry was in that place, which you did laundry. Wait, literally like doing the wash. Yes. yes. I, I always thought maybe it was like they were laundering the experience. Like it, <laughs> I didn't know if it, okay, wow. They were doing that too. And like, a, like a commercial laundry, sorry to, to like, a, yes. a, a commercial laundry, like, like a, yes. okay. That it was a time when <sighs> doing the laundry meant you had a washboard and lye soap. But why was this the particular like labor choice of for this group? They had those kinds of places rather than that they had factories. Like why weren't they doing sewing or something? Or that cleaned fish or things like that? <laughs> I don't know. But that everybody needed a laundry and the sisters had captured the laundry trade and the nuns who ran these places. And this is what the girls, the girls and the women who were sent to those places did and it was called Magdalene laundries because the ultimate sinner in Catholicism was Mary Magdalene. Right. Remember that she was a prostitute. And then she learned to love Jesus and she became a good woman. And so that was the goal. But you got stuck in that laundry for your lifetime. And and the babies were given up for adoption as soon as they were born. Babies were given up for adoption and many of those babies died and they were buried in mass graves. Why did they die? They died because they didn't have good care. You mean they died at birth? They died at birth. And this was, what time period are we talking about? I would say the 30s, 40s, 50s is, is when that stuff started. I'm not an expert on it, but it started then and it went, it, went, it went for quite a long time. So the version of that that we have now in the United States, like these, you know, the crisis pregnancy center, like are, are these women then referred to 
like a place where they can go and be pregnant, like for the period of time and then have the baby and give it up for adoption? Like, does that model exist? There are still places. First, I don't think for the most part, women who are pregnant, who go to end up in a pregnancy crisis pregnancy center, I don't think most of them end up in a home for unwed mothers. Okay. Okay, Right. That, that, you know, that model, we had that model in the States, but women don't feel the need to do that as, you know, like obviously, first of all, because if you become pregnant and you don't want your pregnancy known and you do not want to, or you carry that pregnancy to term, you have an abortion. So we are now talking about a smaller population of women who end up continuing and uh, what was an unwanted pregnancy either and they go and and you know obviously we know a significant number of women go to these pregnancy counseling centers thinking it's a place where they can get an abortion right and some of them are convinced or cajoled into continuing their pregnancy and some of them want to continue their pregnancy and there are some of these pregnancy a percentage of these pregnancy centers that are actually honest. Okay. Not all of the pregnancies, there are millions of, uh, there are thousands of them rather. Not all of these centers lie to women. Most of them lie to women, but not all of them. And you know, what happens is that while you are pregnant, they, first of all, they refer you to Medicaid. They handle the, you're going to continue the pregnancy. So they don't really give you that much but they process everything that is necessary for you to get Medicaid so you can continue the pregnancy and then to get on, you know, whatever appropriate public assistance exists for you and your child. They do that. In addition, they provide, uh, as I said, they literally provide things like they provide very modest things themselves, like diapers, uh, formula, a crib, etc., and they also handle adoption. How common is adoption at this point? A lot of government money. Okay. Okay. But again, so these, what were we calling them? The at, not extremist? What were we calling them? Absolutists. The absolutists. The absolutists. Okay. The adamant. Like, the adamant. In their minds, are they imagining all these babies being born, some of them with a lot of medical problems? And then being adopted by like nice American parents, like what's the fantasy? Imagine that in in some cases the women will keep their child and be a single mother, and in some cases the women, and in other cases, in the majority of cases, the children will be given up for adoption. That's what they imagine. The other thing that's very interesting is what they don't imagine. And what the adamant, most of the adamant, particularly those on the Catholic side, do not imagine is that after they have their child, they will use birth control. Mm. They don't, you know, they, they are adamant, uh, particularly the Catholic, those centers that are Catholic, and even the feminist groups who are anti-abortion, who are largely motivated by Catholicism, They do, in this process now where they are saying, okay, 
we succeeded and abortion is not going to be legal anymore. And we now have to do something about women who become pregnant that is compassionate and caring. And that is, we have to, you know, we have to do the, do the things that make it economically possible for them to thrive. Maybe even we want to see them go back to school. We want to have all those good things happen and we're going to work for that. But they don't say, and what we're also going to do is promote family planning. Yeah. Which is, which really, if you, if you know, like, which really is the more effective method of reducing abortion than providing a woman who has a kid with, with some diapers. Yeah. Yeah. I have so many more questions about this. That is the Achilles, the absolute unwillingness to recognize contraception as central to, first of all, not becoming pregnant, if you don't want to be pregnant, but also not needing an abortion. Right. And yet you are adamant on this issue. And I've, I've, been, fast, I've been following um, online, particularly, some small movements of women who call themselves feminists and who are against abortion and contraception. And their mindset around contraception is immediately to see everything bad about contraception. Okay. That, oh, contraception is, you know, the pill is bad for women. Uh, these bad things happen if you take the pill. Or wh whatever it is, contraception is, is not in their minds, it's not in women's interest to use contraception. Are you talking about hormonal contraception? I mean, there is... Almost all forms of contraception mm. are problematic. Um, you know, the IUD is problematic. Um, the pill is problematic. Uh, sterilization is problematic. Long-acting, reversible contraceptives, you know, like shots, are problematic. None of these things are good for women. And some of them, like the long-acting contraceptives, they believe cause abortion. Oh. Because they say, they say that, yes, because those are abortifacients because they believe they act after conception. Oh, this is like a little mind, mind twister here. I see. Okay. The IUD, the embryo has already been created, fertilized, and is, passes you know, through the utopian, the utopian, the utopian <laughs> tube. The utopian tube. Oh, right. that's, that's a good title think for about that. Right. Into the, the womb. And it is rejected because of the presence of the IUD. That's an abortion. And so they find a way to not accept contraception. And of course, the reality in the end is that you are not supposed to be having sex without being willing to become pregnant and carry the pregnancy to term. Yeah. Well, there is a, a sort of growing conversation around hormonal contraception and just the way that the pill is being prescribed to a lot of young girls, like 
almost immediately at puberty. Like I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who's certainly in no in no way opposed to contraception or even hormonal contraception for a lot of people. But I think people are starting to say, okay, well, the birth control pill, it was never designed to be used for most of a woman's reproductive life. And, and now it is you know, we we are now assuming there is a baseline assumption that a woman is going to be infertile, like, you know, on the dating market, for instance. And so there's a lot of people talking about how this has affected the mating economy, that this is a whole other thing. And I know that's not what you're referring to, but that goes back to uh, the, to the, that goes back to when the, that kind of uh, approach to the pill goes goes way back i mean in the 1960s there were the, you know the the um there was a woman named barbara seaman s e a m a n who uh was uh very much respected uh who wrote the case against the pill and what you are talking about is what she was saying as well and then that that faded and i think and you're saying that now there are you know some newer studies of this that yeah because i think a lot of um, on the pill forever yeah and i think a lot of uh, younger women are just um i think there's a feeling that men have been very spoiled by this new reproductive landscape that it but it's taken you know the onus off of men and put it on women and you know there's all kinds of downstream effects of this and I, i don't think that that in no way does that equal I mean, for most people, that no, nobody is saying that we should not have contraception, but there's a discussion about the some of the un, unintended consequences. You know, like when you go through the list of, of arguments made by those against abortion to abortion, one of them is abortion lets the man off the hook. Yeah. Okay. And I say men are off the hook. <laughs> Whether you have an abortion or you have a child, we are still at a point in our society where we don't have mechanisms for men to take responsibility for the child they created. Well, we can go after them for child support. Well, that's right. We do, and they don't do it, and we leave them alone. Well, sometimes they do it. They're required to do it. I mean, it would say that you can get your paycheck. Morally speaking, there are a lot of fa- lot of fathers who are not taking care of their children. Right. But there are legal mechanisms to, yeah. to you know, take, yes. garnish people's wages. And yeah. there's, a, there's a system right. in place. But yeah. yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so I want to make sure before we wrap up this portion that we talk about how you're feeling kind of about the future of things. But before we do that, I, I actually wanted to uh, talk about a couple of things that I, I told my listeners, especially the women in, in the unspeakeasy community that I was going to be talking with you. And I asked if they had anything they wanted to make sure we we covered. And several people talked about the relationship between the COVID vaccine mandate and just the whole concept of bodily autonomy. Um, and I wonder if you have thoughts about this. So somebody asked what you think about the co-opting of my body, my choice, health sovereignty centric rhetoric, and how that has, you know, the effect that that's had on the on the current landscape of support for abortion rights. Right. Well, first, I would say that when we think about establishing public policies, particularly any kind of mandate, okay, you must wear a mask, you must 
get vaccinated, those kinds of things. Um, and of course, the, the COVID thing also plays over into the anti-vax movement as well. What you have to include in an evaluation of whether or not you are being unjustifiably coercive, you know, goes to the question of is coercion ever permissible, is the effect on others. In other words, if if the if, if you are like polio vaccine, this goes back to everything of this sort. Polio vaccine, smallpox vaccine, all vaccines, COVID vaccine, uh, wearing masks, etc. All of those things fall in this category of do they have a strong enough negative effect if not used on others in the society so if we're worried that if you don't if the if the if the health system is worried that large numbers of unvaccinated people or people who will not take the covid vaccine will cause more people who don't want to get COVID to end up with COVID, then you you have a balancing act that needs to take place. If there were no effect of the vaccines, the COVID vaccine or masking or whatever, on other people, then there would be no ethically justifiable reason for the state to mandate that you get vaccinated. But if there is going to be a strong effect on others who do not wish to receive, who do not wish to get the disease in question, then there is, then it is not quite the same as saying my body, my choice, my body, my choice, which relates to pregnancy, okay, for example, or sexuality, um, primarily affects the individual does not affect the whole of society. You can extend everything to it affects the whole of society because then we have to educate your kid and we have to do all these things. Maybe you shouldn't have a child. But primarily the effect of being pregnant and being able to choose whether or not to continue a pregnancy or end a pregnancy is affects you. Right. Although now what we know about the vaccines is that it, they do not prevent the spread. So I think people would make the argument that COVID vaccine does really at this point affect the individual more than the population. We didn't know that in the beginning. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, I just would say I'm not aware of that. I would like when we finish this conversation, what will happen with me is that I will explore. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to ruin now, your whole day. Me another thing that I have to research. So, no, is Megan right? And or Megan's the people Megan is dealing with are they right that I have wasted my time taking five? No, you haven't wasted your time at all because you're protecting yourself. Absolutely, no, I've got the vaccine too. But I think what we now know is that it doesn't prevent this, it doesn't prevent spread. You can still pass it to other people even if you're vaccinated. 
I am protected, I can give it to other people is what you're saying. Yeah, I think, yes. I mean, but if, if you are to get sick, if you're vaccinated, you are going to be much, much more likely to survive. Yes, if, I, if I get sick, I then I have to quarantine myself for a little while. Right. But you, right. Yeah, this this isn't a conversation about vaccines, but right. yeah. Before I knew it, I might spread the disease. Right, but if you're vaccinated, being vaccinated in and of itself does not keep you from spreading COVID to others. I think that that is what we now know. Any Anyway, but I think that, you know, and somebody asked this and I have noticed this myself, like I, I have noticed that there, that, that, you know, Republican and libertarian types, people who, well, not so much libertarians, but people who were more just sort of pro-life because that aligned with their other political positions in the, in the wake of the pandemic have been forced to kind of look at this and they say, well, I don't like the idea of being forced to have a vaccine because I don't want the government telling me what to do with my body. Therefore, I'm a little bit of a hypocrite if I think that a woman shouldn't be able to get an abortion, that the government should interfere. It works. It works. It works. It works good for abortion but maybe not for something else. <laughs> yeah, but it, people have uh, have really been forced to, to get their minds around these things. So where do you think we are at this point? Okay, first of all, has this been worse than you imagined a year ago than when we talked? Is it about the same? Has this gone better or worse than you feared? In general, I think, I would say it is between about the same and worse. Okay, in terms of my expectations, I and I don't think we have yet grappled with some of the worst. Okay, so the next thing is this: I haven't seen much action on this. IVF. You create some embryos. Well, if these embryos are people, what are we going to do? We can't destroy them. Does the woman have to have all of them inserted? You know, I mean, those are all of those embryos in the minds of the adamant absolutist are the equivalent of people, each and every one of them. Maybe we have to outlaw IVF. <laughs> that, would, that would change a lot of people's minds. Yeah, that's not going to be popular. No, it's not going to be popular, but th but there are people who are going to try it. But do you think that taking this out of the hands of the court is going to ultimately push us back toward greater access to abortion, that all, more states are going to go the way of Kansas, that, that we're going to just have people say, okay, no, enough is enough. Sorry, you called our bluff. This isn't really what we want. Not in my lifetime. Okay. I mean, I think that there will be more, you know, again, right now we have 17 secure states out of 50. All of those remaining, 33, I guess, adds up to 50. Those 33 states that are not secure, few of them have completely banned abortion. Some of them have limited abortion. And over time, I think more of those states will go conservative on abortion or against abortion than towards abortion. Why? So, because we live in a country of red and blue states. And I don't see 
most of the states that are conservative, socially conservative, culturally conservative, as well as other types of conservatism. But those that are in the cultural conservative bag, I don't see my side winning a lot of those states in the next decade. But most voters want abortion access. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. Really? No. It doesn't matter. No. No, because if most voters, if, if most, because that would say, and this is largely true, that in in some of those 33 states, I mean, do we really think most Texans are not generally in favor of some access to abortion or Floridians? You know, look at those states. And does the state care? But don't you feel like those voters will no. vote those people out and no. eventually over time? No, I do not. Th- no, I don't think that. I I think that is the hope of the pro-choice movement. Is that and and there is some evidence in some places where voter you know it is said that the exit polls show that people who voted think that abortion should be legal, but the hold. But that's not the only issue that people are concerned about. Mm. And right now, they're more, con- they, they, may, they may say, yeah, I think of, there are not that many single issue abortion voters who are in, uh, among those who are in favor of abortion. The, you know, th- that each of the two camps has, is, consists of people who are interested in a large number of issues. And abortion does not always rise to the top. And in the current climate in the country, it is not, even though people are upset about abortion and think it should be legal, they're more upset about education in the schools. They're more upset about transgender issues. They're more upset about the economy. They're more upset about jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so even though abortion may be an issue in which they say, yes, I think abortion should be legal, but I got to take care of the job problem. I got to get back in control of the schools, I, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think that those issues will, those other issues on abortion will determine how people vote more than abortion. So that's so interesting. It's like it, the left is overplaying its hand in some ways. And yes, in some ways, in some ways to issue. our advantage, because again, the majority of Americans who say they believe abortion should be legal do not believe abortion should be legal to the extent it was legal under Roe. And therefore, they now get to look at what a law on abortion looks like that goes to the state legislature. And if it's not very moderate, it it can't rise up very high. I mean, this has always been the problem with polling, is that those of us who are pro-choice believe the top line. Do you believe abortion should be legal? Yes. Do you support Roe v. Wade? Yes. They don't know what Roe v. Wade is. Or was. And they when they say they think abortion should be legal, they are not thinking of a row formula. Because then you go down to the second line. That's the top line of the poll. And you go down to the second line. 
Do you believe abortion should be legal in the first trimester? Do you believe abortion should be legal in the second trimester? Do you believe abortion should be legal in the third trimester? Do you believe parents should have a say, should have to consent or know that their child is having an abortion? All of those other issues. Do you believe abortion is should be legal for economic reasons? Oh, I believe it should be legal for rape, and I think it should be legal for health. But I don't know if it should be legal just because somebody doesn't have enough money. That's why the side that is strongly pro-choice prefers rights-based decisions on abortion that come out of the court, not the legislature. Additionally, the courts were more reliable for liberals. Now the courts are not so reliable for liberals. Right. I mean, you look at the nine people on the Supreme Court. You've got five of them, maybe six, I can never remember, who either are practicing Catholics or Gorsuch, who was raised as a Catholic, but probably is not a Catholic. Okay. Okay, so what if somebody wants to be an abortion rights activist, if they want to try to do something, feel like they're doing something, what's the best thing they can do? They should support an organization called the Bridget Alliance. The Bridget Alliance is, in my opinion, the most effective fund for women who need abortions and can't afford it. It doesn't pay for the abortion. It pays for the bus. It pays for the train. It pays for the plane. It pays for the hotel. It pays for the babysitter. Because just now, so that's, I, I, I'm still in the same place I was when I last talked to you. The most important thing we can do is pay for abortions for women who cannot, who want them and cannot get them. Okay. How do you spell that? Bridget? Bridget. B-R-I-G-I-D. Okay. After St. Bridget, I think, but I don't know for sure. <laughs> okay. So this, so it's access. It's getting them there. This goes back to my idea about for abortion error, abortion airlines. I, I mean, I joked about this a long time ago, but I'm serious. Yes, and there are now, there is a group of pilots who are flying women for abortions. Mm-hmm. They got together, the pilots got together, and they they will fly, they, you know, they work through the abortion funds and things like that, and they will fly women who need abortions to a place to get an abortion. Now they're going to be prosecuting pilots. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. And, and you know, the so I was going to say something about this. You know, because if you want to speak moderately about abortion, okay, like if you want to be politically astute about abortion rather than ideological. From the perspective of pro-choice people, a law that permits abortions on a woman's request in the first, even in just the first trimester, 12 weeks, will take care of 90% of the abortions that are performed in the United States. And as long as it doesn't prohibit abortion after 12 weeks, those of us who are in favor of legal abortion can afford to fund 
10% of the abortions in this country. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's fascinating. All right. Well, we're going to do a little bonus and we're going to talk about, I, I, I do want to actually hear about what you do in, in Mexico and how that all works. So we're going to touch on that in the bonus. If anybody's interested, they can become sure. a paying subscriber. And we're also going to talk about your age. You have a big birthday coming up, but uh, Francis, thank you so much for coming back. I, this is incredibly valuable and uh, I, I love having you on. So I really appreciate. Uh, well, I love talking. So it's perfect. It's a match made in heaven. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks so much. That was my conversation with Frances Kissling. She is president of the Center for Health, Ethics, and Social Policy in Washington, D.C. She's also a professor of philosophy and ethics in Mexico. Frances was president of Catholics for Choice from 1982 to 2007. She's been working in the abortion rights movement since the very early 1970s. Again, to hear my conversation with her from last year, go back and find the May 8, 2022 episode entitled The Future of Abortion. And again, if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, where Francis talks about turning 80, among other things, become a paying subscriber at megandaum.substack.com. It's just $7 a month and you get bonus content like every week really good bonus content, I got to say. What else do you need to know? This is the Unspeakable Podcast. Please note that this is a separate entity from the Unspeakeasy, which is my free-thinking women's community. You've heard me talk about it a lot, but in case there's any confusion, it's not like if you are a paying subscriber to this podcast, you are automatically a member of the Unspeakeasy, partly because uh, we don't have any men in the Unspeakeasy. Anyway, Our online community is fantastic. If you would like to join it, go to theunspeakeasy.com. The next retreat we have scheduled is in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, October 23rd through 26th. This is going to be a really luxurious retreat. So think about it. Treat yourself. Also check out my other podcast, A Special Place in Hell, which I do every week with Sarah Hader. I'm going to take off uh, next week. I'm going to take this podcast off next week for the 4th of July holiday. That will give you time to catch up on all of this stuff. And I will be back after that with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then. 